Turning the Bibles to Romans chapter four, we're going to we're going to finish up Romans four today. Uh, we're going to take it in two parts. Uh, it'll be thirteen through twenty-five is the whole thing. We're going to look at thirteen through sixteen, and then we're also going to look then at uh, seventeen through twenty-five. So it's kind of an artificial division, but uh, there's no easy place to to break it. So I hope to hope what we can do is look at it as as one larger argument, one larger story that Paul is is telling based on the based on the story of Genesis, and kind of bring out some things that um, that I think he's getting at in this that aren't they're not really right on the surface. And sometimes Paul, very often Paul will will take he will he will say something in like a half a verse, and he's assuming so much kind of in back of it. Or a whole verse, and and he's he's basically summing up the whole story of Abraham in in one verse, and so we're gonna I'm gonna try to unpack that just a bit, and uh, we're going to uh, we're going to look we'll go back and review just a little bit about about sonship and inheritance, and then we're going to look at what a person who has the faith of Abraham essentially is going to look like. So what is what is someone who has Abraham's kind of faith, which I think it, Paul is really getting at here. There, there are many kinds of faith in the world, and you hear you hear people, popular stars that are saying, "Yeah, I believe, I have faith." And it's like, "Do you right? What kind of faith do you have? You have a faith. You have the faith of Abraham, right? because that type of faith is a, is a, a certain type of faith. It's not just I believe in God." No, it has something to do with uh, with the mysterious working of God throughout the history of Israel in the biblical text, and and it it basically says yes, I believe the promises of God regarding sonship. That is, God is bring, God is making a people, and also about inheritance. God is God is creating a new world, and He is calling us as the people of God to inhabit it. And ultimately, he's going to bring it to pass. That bring it to pass. That's what's called the resurrection. And it's that type of faith that Paul says Abraham had. And so we're gonna we're gonna try to look at that and, and uh, bring out some some application of that. It's one thing to say, hey, we I believe in God. It's another thing, quite another thing, to have the faith of Abraham. So let's uh, let's pray as we start. Uh, Father, thank you for your. Uh, precious word. We just pray that uh, we would uh, rightly understand it and that we might be radically changed thereby, that we might uh, develop the mind of Christ, that we might uh, that we might prove everything that comes our way, and Father, that we might uh, seek to live uh, in your temple forever, uh, the renewed heavens, the new earth that uh, you are about creating, resurrection. Father, we thank you for your word. We just pray that we would uh, that we would immerse ourselves in it, that we would come to an understanding of it, and then that we would go and share it with others. And uh, we just pray all these things in Jesus's holy name. Amen. So, four thirteen through twenty-five, taken in two parts. Uh, I'll read uh, verses thirteen through sixteen first. There's going to be a little bit of overlap, uh, but we'll come back and. And work through that, and then 17 through 25, we'll, we'll deal with uh, in the latter part. 
Verse 13, for the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is also no transgression. For this reason, it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Last week, I spent considerable time going through the way that Paul has interpreted the promise of Abraham. The way the promise is said to be a promise of descendants, that is, of sonship, but also a promise of territory, that is, inheritance. So you have these two things. You have sonship, God is calling a people, and the second is that he's giving them a territory, an inheritance. And Paul says that this territory is no longer just the land of Canaan, but it has been expanded to the whole cosmos. The whole world, the whole globe has been given to the people of God. Uh, this is extremely important, and it has such widespread ramifications that it, it ought to make us think about it like nonstop. That God has given the world to the people who belong to the Messiah. We saw uh, that uh, though the text explicitly says that Abraham and his descendants will inherit the land of Canaan, that's what we see in the text, right? We saw how a broader reading of the promises to Abraham, that in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed, requires an expansion of the land. If the nations were to be blessed in Abraham, wouldn't Abraham need to possess them in some way? Right? This is the question. If the nations were to be blessed in Abraham, wouldn't Abraham need to possess them in some way? And isn't this what the book of Genesis says? That Abraham's descendants will possess the gate of their enemies. If so, then the land of inheritance would have to be broader than the strip of territory the size of North Carolina over in the Middle East. Perhaps it would be the whole world. And this is precisely what we find when we look at texts like Psalm 2, Isaiah 11, 10 through 14, where the Lord's kingdom and his rule is expanded over Edom, Moab, Egypt, Assyria, all the kingdoms of that world. And this is precisely what we find when we look at the significance given to Jesus' death and resurrection. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, all the nations have been given to him as an inheritance. As the king, the king of Israel, the son of God who inherits the land and the cosmos. All authority, he says, has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Go make disciples. That's what he says. Interlocking with this argument of how the promise is fulfilled to Abraham through the Messiah is the concern to establish the means by which such a fulfillment comes to pass. And the, and the means by which it does not come to pass. What is the key into this blessedness? Is it through the law? Is the law the key that gets you into this blessedness? Could we not say, say Paul's interlocutors, the ones with whom he is debating in the letter, 
letter, God gave the law to Israel, and as, as an identity marker, they are the ones who are going to inherit the promise. Could we not say that? Could we not say that we get into the covenant by keeping the law? And those, those then who keep the law are shown in the present to be those who will inherit the world, the age to come, eternal life. After all, isn't this what they have always believed? Now I'm speaking for those who are the Jews of the first century. Isn't this what they had believed? That those who keep the law, these are the ones who will be shown to be in the right when God comes to judge the world, and they will then inherit the world. Right? This is what they thought. And didn't many Jewish martyrs give their lives for the obedience to the Torah, with the Torah serving as shorthand for the law of Moses, and with Sabbath and new moons and circumcision standing as shorthand summary for these identity markers? Yes, in fact, they did. In fact, they did give their lives for Torah, lots of them, hundreds of thousands probably. Not because they thought they could work their way, but because that was the covenant charter that God had given them. God had made it with Israel, and they had been given the task of being faithful to it. Take, for example, those who were slain during the Maccabean Revolt, 167-160 B.C. Antiochus Epiphanes marches on Jerusalem in the temple, and he sacrifices a pig on the altar, desecrating the holy place. According to the scroll of Antiochus, the motivating factor for this march was that they don't sacrifice to our gods. In our laws, they do not observe. And they disregard the king's laws to observe their own laws, right? They keep the law. That's the, so this is written from the perspective of a faithful Jew. And this is what they're say, saying is the justification for Antiochus coming and invading Jerusalem. And moreover, they say, they hope for the day when the kings and rulers will be destroyed, saying, when will our own king reign over us, such that we ourselves will reign over the sea and the land in the entire world will come into our hands. Exactly what Paul is saying in Romans. But he's saying it doesn't come through Torah. Right? It comes through the Messiah. That's exactly what they're saying. They're saying we're obedient to the Torah, we're obedient to the Torah, and this is going to show when God appears and destroys these wicked pagans, this is going to show that we are given the divine rule over the whole world. That's, how, that's what they're hoping for. They say, come now, let us ascend against them and, and abolish the covenant that God made with them. Sabbath, new moons, and circumcision. These are the three identity markers that they lay out as being what defines a Jew as a Jew. What defines those who, who say they are going to be justified in the future when God comes to judge the world? The Greeks are saying that the Jews, because of Torah, don't assimilate. They keep their law. They keep their own law. And these things are summarized by their most obvious observances that come from the law. Sabbaths, new moons, and circumcision. And they await a day when their king will rule the world. And many Jews were willing to go to their deaths for it and did. In the same story, Antiochus begins the invasion and he massacres a large number of Jews. And he initiated an absolute decree against Sabbath, new moons, and circumcision, killing those who did not comply. In other words, 
those who remained faithful to Torah were killed. Now here's my point. It would have been a big deal for Jews of Paul's day to set aside Torah observance and be a huge deal because their ancestors had given their lives for it. And it would be easy to hear Paul saying that the law had been abolished and was no longer valid in some final sense. But he's not exactly saying that. We're going to see as we, as we move along, that's not exactly what he's saying, though he is saying something more subtle about it. He is saying that sonship and inheritance do not come through law observance or the covenant made with Moses on Mount Sinai. And he argues that, that it is a matter of priority, temporal priority. The law was not part of the covenant with Abraham, he says, and therefore it could not be the way that the nations would enter into the blessedness given to Abraham and promised for the world. What Paul is ultimately saying on a larger scale is that something has changed such that the markers of covenant faithfulness are no longer Sabbath, new moons, and circumcision. The markers of someone being in the covenant are now found in the Messiah. That's what he's saying. He's not saying that they were wrong to think this way, but that something has changed. It's changed to the point where those things are utterly meaningless in light of what Jesus has done. That's, exact, that's what he's getting at. This apocalypse, something has broken onto the scene, namely Jesus' death and resurrection, that now makes all of those things seem but signs pointing to Jesus, and they, they pale in comparison with him. And he, might, he, he, he argues this as a matter of temporal priority. Within the story, within the story of the scriptures, the law was not given to Abraham. This is very important. We're going to see how he picks this up and, and works through this and says, look, this is, this is not the way into the blessedness of the new covenant. In verse 15, he gives a further reason why the inheritance can't come through the law. And by the inheritance, I mean the world, the cosmos. In, the meek shall inherit the world, right? That's it. The meek shall inherit the land. That's you and me and anybody who's in the Messiah. That's the inheritance that he's talking about. And he says, there's another reason why uh, you can't inherit by the law. The law, he says, brings wrath. But where there is no law, neither is there violation or transgression. Now, there are two parts to this. First, he says the law brings wrath. Here Paul is hinting at something he will develop more fully in chapter 7 when he discusses the relationship between the law, sin, and transgression. But the gist of it is this. As much as Israel did and should have delighted in the law, the law itself had a purpose that was not readily seen by them nor acknowledged. God was using his good and holy law to bring sin into one place, into one people in order to condemn it in that one place. So first God had to harness, if you will, sin in the people that he had chosen, Israel, and then bring that sin further into one place within Israel, namely the body of Jesus. It is in this way that the law does its strange and dark work, but it is not that the law itself is bad, 
as Paul will go on to say. No, that is its necessary work. But the very fact that it cannot produce covenant faithfulness or righteousness means that it cannot be the means by which the promise is fulfilled. Because what is needed is a way, and this is coming back to what we said last week, what is needed is a way for all the nations to be blessed, apart from circumcision, Sabbaths, new moons, on and on. Secondly, he says, where there is no law, neither is there transgression. What does he mean by this? Here is what I think he's getting at. This is very important. Uh, when, we, when we read the story of Abraham, we see that Abraham had his failures, his sins, if you will. Remember how he took uh, Hagar as a wife in order to raise up a descendant to fulfill the promise? This was not what God intended. Would we call that sin? I think we would. Remember how Abraham lied about Sarah being his wife by saying that she was his sister? The author has intentionally included these lapses into the description of, of the life of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, many, many more in there. But remarkably, there's no transgression and no punishment. Read the story. Read it. Do you ever see a time when he, when he says of Abraham that he sinned, or of Isaac or of Jacob for that matter? So I think Paul is actually reading that story, and he's saying, look, there are these lapses, but where there's no law, there's no transgression. In other words, Abraham is living under grace. He's living in the realm of grace. There is a realm in which you can live where your sins are not counted against you. The author includes these lapses specifically within the whole grain of the Pentateuch to contrast these men, the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who don't have the law, with the generation that does have the law, the under the law generation. For of Abraham, the scripture says, this is remarkable. In Genesis 26, 5, it says, in spite of the fact that Abraham did not have the law, it says, Abraham obeyed my voice. He kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. In other words, Abraham was a law keeper before the law was given. How can this be? How can this be? How can Abraham who lived at a time before the law was given, be said to have kept it. How can he do it? The answer to this can be nothing less than that he believed the promise and that was counted as law keeping. That was counted as fulfilling the law. As we're gonna see in Romans, this is a theme of Paul's as well. Those who believe in the Messiah, who receive the spirit have fulfilled the law. Right? That's what he's after. And what Paul is saying is that if you look at the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they are living in this realm of grace as well, where their faith is counted as in the covenant, righteousness, law-keeping. They keep the law in spite of not even having it. That's what he's getting at. There is a realm in which a person's sins are not counted against them. And we can see this in the scripture's accounting of the life of Abraham. Abraham was in the realm of grace, entered into it through faith in the promises of God, wherein his sins were not counted 
against him in spite of him having sins. This is because if you're in the covenant and you have not been given covenant stipulations, that is the law, there's no violation of the law, obviously. And so this really is a short summary in this one verse of what the law does or doesn't do. Paul is saying that in the scriptures we see that where no law exists, there's no violation of the law. Now, this is true in a general sense as well. Like if you look at like the laws that we live under in our society, this is also true that if there's no law against it, it's not illegal, right? I mean, everybody knows that. We, we kind of live in that, that mindset. That's not exactly what he's getting at here, but it's the same, it's the same principle. Here, the topic is not simply, is there some kind of law, and therefore, is, is Abraham guilty of breaking it? The, the question for, for Paul is, did Abraham have the law, the, the, the Mosaic law? the Torah um, in a broader sense, but uh, the Mosaic law, did he have that? And if he didn't, how then can it be said that he kept that law? And then if we read that story, we find the only answer to that is that he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, right? That's it. He's a law keeper without having the law. We are shown how to become, in essence, true law keepers, even if we have no law. Now, this is not important. It's not, I mean, it should be important for a Jewish person, but this is really important for a Gentile because what matters, Paul says elsewhere, is keeping the commandments. That's what he says. He comes out and says, what matters is keeping the commandments. You say, well, how do I keep the commandments? And his answer is, are you in the Messiah? Are you, are you walking by the Spirit? I think that's, that's ultimately it. This is the realm of grace. We're going to get into this um, uh, next week and week after that. Um, Paul is going to, to come back to this idea of you're under grace, under grace, under grace. This is a realm in which your sins are not counted against you. That's ultimately what it is. And you come into that through the righteous act of one, right? Through, through the act of the Messiah, that's how you get into this realm. And it's a realm where your sins are not counted against you. Praise God. Remember when he said earlier in the letter that some Gentiles, not having the law, do instinctively the things in the law. They are a law unto themselves, he says, not having the law. This is precisely what he's talking about. Not just anyone in particular, some pagan out there swinging from the trees. No, these are particular people who have believed in Jesus. They show the law of, of God written on their hearts. These people have entered into covenant with God and their sins are no longer counted against them. They have entered in through faith. And this is characterized as the realm of grace. Paul says in verse 16, says it in verse 16 exactly uh, like this. For this reason, he says, Justification, that is, entering into the covenant, is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace, in order that the promise may be certain to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, the Jews, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. 
And for Paul, it must be this way, because the promise entails that Abraham will become the father of many nations, he says, verse 17, as it is written, the father of many nations I have made you. The very fact that the, the Gentiles are part of this larger promise means that it can't be in accordance with the law, that it must be in accordance with faith. And then you look back on the scriptures in light of Jesus, and you see, actually, this is this is what was being said all along in the in the description of Abraham and his family. Right? This is what has been said all along. In the sight of him whom he believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Now we turn to the final part in verses 17 through 25. As it is written, he says, A father of many nations I have made you. In the presence of him whom he believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist, who in hope against hope he believed, so that he might become the father of many nations according to that which he had spoken. So shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sakes also to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. What does a life look like lived out in the realm of grace? It is a life, first of all, that doesn't waver in unbelief. It is a life that believes that the impossible is possible, even certain. It is a life that moves forward confidently, even when the future looks very bleak. But not simply for any reason, as some might want to use this text. While it does involve the general ebbs and flows of life and a life lived in faith within those, here he is talking about a life lived in the certainty that God has made a promise and he intends to keep it. God's kingdom is moving forward. If we want to generalize it, this is, this is kind of the, this is in essence the promise. If we expand it out and we think about what this means in terms of what God is doing in the world, God's kingdom is moving forward and he will call a people for himself, give them an inheritance and lead them into it. Sounds actually like the story of Israel. God will call a people and he will give them an inheritance and he will lead them to it. And in fact, that's exactly what we find if you read Romans, Romans 8. Romans 8 is actually God has given an inheritance. He's given the spirit. The spirit is leading them into the inheritance. This resurrection is the inheritance, essentially. In other words, this whole thing is built on what the story of Israel actually looked like. Our faith, then, must be in relation to what God is doing. It must be oriented toward the future in relation to what God is doing in the world. In other words, we can't just generally say, I have faith, 
therefore I'm going to be given such and such in the future, right? Toys, trinkets, lots of money, etc. I can see here these texts used this way all the time. Many of us are so concerned with success in this world, not, not us, but a lot of people in the world, a lot of Christians, that we have removed ourselves from the concerns of God and the kingdom and the realm at which he is at work. And for the, for the kind of faith that Abraham had to, um, had to be active, our faith must be anchored in matters of sonship and inheritance. So if you think about it, if you kind of back up and look at, at what has been promised, God has promised a family. He has promised an inheritance. The kind of faith that actually saves people is a faith that rests in that it rests in the fact that you and I have been called to be a part of that greater family and that we've been given an inheritance and therefore we live our lives in light of that. I think that's the idea. This kind of faith, this kind of faith is the faith of Abraham, where God's sons are glorified in their kingly glory as we share in the glory of Jesus, the firstborn of many sons. We have to be careful, I think, to contextualize what faith actually means. Since texts like this have been abused, and our minds often lead us to twist, twist what the scriptures mean by faith, because we often aren't thinking the thoughts of scripture. So we must say that when the scriptures talk of faith, they talk of faith in God's promises, this kind of faith, is not the faith that seeks to satisfy our own lusts. There is a kind of faith that is not the kind of faith that Paul is talking about, not the kind of faith of Abraham. It is a faith that believes God has said that he's going to fulfill a promise, that he's going to call a people from all the nations for the age to come. And then we get involved in that. This operates on the family level first, as we can see with Abraham, and then works outwardly. Our faith and fruitfulness must be defined by God's vision of fruitfulness rather than the world's vision of success. And in fact, maybe we ought to talk about goals in terms of fruitfulness rather than the term success. Are we bearing fruit, right? This is very often what the, how the Bible frames success, fruitfulness. Think of our lives as bearing fruit. Here, this kind of faith is illustrated. We can imagine that Abraham might have been criticized for believing something so patently absurd, namely that God would give him a son when he was 100 years old, that he might have wavered in his unbelief, but that, that is not the case. He did not waver in his unbelief. With respect to the promise of God, he did not waver, but he grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able to perform. Because of this, it says, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham so truly believed that God was able and would do what he said, that God made a covenant with him, reckoning, reckoning his faith to him as righteousness. Now, what Paul says here in verse 23 is a very important statement regarding his, what I would call, the way that he interprets his Bible. What I mean is this. Paul gives us here a perspective into how 
we are to read the scriptures. In verse 23, he says, but not because of Abraham, not because of him only was it written that it was reckoned to him. Verse 24, but because of us also to whom it will be reckoned. Now, what I think he means by this is that there's a certain way of reading the scriptures, whereby we might think that the scriptures were just telling Abraham himself that he had been reckoned as righteousness, as righteous, right? We tend to look at the scriptures and say, oh, well, God was speaking there to Abraham and Abraham got this idea, etc." But that's not how it works. And that's not how Paul is reading it. In other words, Abraham, we might think, Abraham and the other characters in the Bible are somehow the recipients of the information that is said about them that somehow they are the beneficiaries of what the scriptures say. You think about this. We often think in terms of like, this is like a drive-by situation and, and somebody's got a camera on Adam and Eve. And, but no, this is not the case. These things are written for us. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 10. These things were written for us as an admonition so that we must not um, lust after evil things. He says, those of us upon whom the end of the age has come, these things were written for us. It's not the case that they were written for Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or any of the characters that are within the scripture. It was written for us. That's what he's saying. In fact, Abraham and the characters within the Bible itself were not privy to the information that we have as readers. They may have known some things. Of course, they, Abraham knew he was being put into the, into the covenant. God makes a covenant with him. But the scriptures include interpretation as well. The scriptures were intended for an audience by an author who is living later than the characters within the book. And so Paul says these things were written because of us, that we might see what is being said of Abraham and have his kind of faith. And that's the point I'm getting at. Right? The scriptures, and if you read them this way, it actually will benefit you greatly. If you read the scriptures, not as some drive-by, shot-by-shot uh, -shot historical summary of what happened, but as an intentionally worked document that is meant to be, uh, meant to be uh, thought upon, uh, mused upon, uh, pondered all the time, and, and we can ask these questions of it, and we can say, look, how does, what does this author intend for us to get from the organization of this letter in this way? This is what I think Paul was doing in this, in this particular passage. He's saying, in chapter 4, he's saying, look, there is a matter of order within the story of Abraham. Abraham, he's, get, he's called, right? he's given a promise, he believes the promise, He's put into the covenant. He's circumcised in chapter 17. Chapter 22, he offers up his son Isaac, which we're getting to, or he is going to. And Paul says this actually matters. And then when we put that story within the greater story of Israel, and we compare these, these groups of people, and, and we look at what the scriptures themselves say about these people, we can see that actually this author had a purpose in mind that he's trying to convey by the by comparing these two peoples. So my point is, my, my point, my larger point is this, that when we read the story of Abraham, he is seeking to characterize Abraham as someone who lived before the law was given, 
but who believed the promise of God and entered into the covenant. That is then compared with Israel, who is supposed to be the recipient of the land, who waver in their unbelief, especially when they're given the law, and they end up dying in the wilderness. That's what's going on within the Pentateuch. And Paul is basically expanding on this reading of, of Genesis and Exodus. So he's, he's actually giving us kind of an interpretive framework by which we then can view the text. Now, what Paul says in verses 24 and 25 is that when we believe in the God who raised Jesus from the dead, we are exhibiting the kind of faith that Abraham himself had, who, he says, though his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, and though Sarah's womb was dead, yet he did not waver in his unbelief. Abraham himself, Paul insinuates, embodies a resurrection from the dead faith because he too had been resurrected in a sense. What was dead, his body, had been brought to life, both his body and the body of Sarah. They had experienced a resurrection. And not only this, but later in the story, he will again, he will again encounter a resurrection situation when at the command of God, he is commanded to deliver up his own son, the very answer to the promise. Offer him up as a burnt offering, he says. Chapter 22 of Genesis, which Paul has no doubt read many times, Abraham and his son Isaac are setting out to go to the mountain of God, where Abraham had been commanded to sacrifice Isaac. This was a test, of course, but Abraham doesn't know that. It's another one of those things that we, the reader, are privy to, but that the characters in the story are not. The author tells us, after these things, God tested Abraham. So they are setting out, and Abraham says to his servants, stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there. And this is what's remarkable. And we will worship, and we will return to you. The author tells us, we, it, Abraham himself, him, himself says, we are going to worship and we are going to return to you. It's only he and, and uh, Isaac. Now he's already been told that he is to go and offer up his son, whom he loves, his only son, as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which God will tell him. Now how does this work out? If he sacrifices his son, how will they both return? And here we have our answer. That Abraham's faith was a faith in the God who raises the dead. And he believed God's promise so much that even if he had to kill his own son, he knew that God would raise him from the dead because God had already promised that in Isaac, your seed will be called. In the previous chapter, chapter 21, verse 12, he said, in Isaac, your seed will be called. And then God says, go Go kill your son. Go sacrifice your son. If God had to raise the dead, Abraham was sure he would keep his promises. And Paul, with a wink, turns briefly to this allusion in verse 25, where Jesus, no doubt, is an allusion to the offering of Abraham's only son, Isaac. And he says, Jesus, our Lord, who was raised from the dead, who was delivered up because of our transgressions, 
and he was raised because of our justification. Jesus, Jesus himself, though not exactly like Isaac, was put forth on our behalf because of our transgressions, and he was raised to guarantee our entrance into the covenant and the family of Abraham. This, this section lays out many, many things. There, there are lots of things that we could look at. But what I would like to impress upon you is, is to evaluate yourself. Evaluate the kind of faith that you have. Is it a kind of faith that's designed by your own design just to kind of get you through? Get you through? Is, or is it a kind of faith that is actually focused on the things of the kingdom of God, what God is doing throughout the world. Right? That is something we all, we have to continually remind ourselves and, and question ourselves about what kind of faith do we have? Is it just a like fire insurance? That's how it's often presented. Fire insurance is going to get your get out of jail free card. Right? I don't think so. It's a kind of faith that actually has in view the promise of God, create a family that then kind of encompasses our life, calls us, it, it calls us forth to do something other than just get through right? and get somehow to heaven one day. It's that kind of faith. And that kind of faith is the, the kind of saving faith that James will talk about as well, also based on Abraham. But it's that kind of faith that is what God requires, right? That's what he is after. So.